Well, I was a fanatic. There's no doubt a fanatic. My goal was to get carried out of the wrestling room because of exhaustion, and it never happened. The thing it did for me every day about 6 o'clock is that when I got out, I looked back in, and there was nobody else there. Bottom line was I didn't reach my goal. So guess what happened? I went back in the room again. But I got some quality time because of just some kind of a fanatic goal. Welcome back to Wrestling Changed My Life. This is your host, Ryan Warner. Now, folks, today's guest is one of the leading business icons of our time. He's known throughout Silicon Valley and the world. His name's Carl Eschenbach. He's currently the partner at Sequoia Ventures, which is probably the most respected venture capital firm in Silicon Valley. And before that, he was COO and president at VMware. Joining the company in the early 2000s when they had about $200 million in revenue and leaving 15 years later, helping grow them to well over $7 billion. So this man knows sales. He knows how to climb the ladder, knows how to achieve success in life. And in this podcast, we talk about a couple things, including how he thinks about just optimism and, and positivity and how he carries that throughout his day. We talk about his work ethic. And of course, we talk about how wrestling impacted his life. Carl wrestled in Pennsylvania and throughout high school and a little bit in D1. And obviously the sport had a huge impact on his life and that's why he's here to talk about it with us. So really hope you enjoyed this one. For past episodes, please visit wrestlingchangemylife.org. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, please leave a rating, subscribe, give us your feedback, good, bad, or otherwise. We really appreciate it. Now sit back and enjoy this podcast as we take you into the heart of Silicon Valley with Carl Eschenbach. Thank you. So, Carl, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. Well, we're really excited. And you know, I know we have a, a couple of things we want to cover today, you know, around sales, around, you know, how wrestling shaped your life and ultimately put you on the trajectory of where you're at now. But I'd love to just start with a quick background on how you went from, you know, growing up in Pennsylvania to you know, being one of the most legendary figures in, in the enterprise software world in Silicon Valley in quite some time. So how did that journey happen? Talk us through that. Yeah, sure, Ryan. Well, thank you for those kind words. I'm, I'm kind of nervous to say anything because it'll ruin that. <laughs> you just highlighted for me. But, uh, but let me see if I can kind of go through it very quickly here. Yeah, I, um, I grew up in uh, northeast Pennsylvania in the Poconos area of Pennsylvania. So for those people who know, you know anything about wrestling or know anything about the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania, District 11, know it, uh, know it well. But most people... Uh, don't equate, you know, Northeast Pennsylvania with someone who ultimately found a, a journey into the high tech industry. But I grew up there, uh, a very modest family with one sister, amazing parents. Um, my father was uh, and is to this day uh, my mentor in life. And I look to the to the heavens every day to uh, say hello to him and thank him for what he taught me. And uh, it was a really exciting, uh, you know, life that I had growing up in Pennsylvania with my family. Uh, my father was uh, a hardworking man, um, was, you know, went out from the high school and, and went right into the military. And, uh, and his uh, passion in life was his family, which is a key principle that I have now in my life. And uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, at times there's not a lot to do, especially where I grew up. It was out in the, very much in the suburbs. 
My father mm-hmm. was uh, a guy who found his way into business himself, owned, if you will, like a Dairy Queen, a soft ice cream uh, stand. And in the winter, because you can't sell ice cream in the winter uh, in Pennsylvania, he journeyed into another business and we sold Christmas trees. So I grew up uh, always working with people in a public setting or in the fields, uh, cutting Christmas trees and dragging them out and bailing them and shipping them around the, the Northeast. So it was a great upbringing. Uh, in, in high school there, I participated in three sports, football, wrestling, and baseball. I had a passion for all of them. And, uh, you know, it's a little different these days, Ryan. Today they ask kids to specialize. Back then you did everything. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, my passion, it's funny looking back, my passion was always wrestling. And, uh, you know, we'll get into that later. But it, it taught me a lot about life and a life lesson that I hold dear to my heart today. From there, I actually uh, decided um, to go to college for wrestling, uh, to a Division I school um, in Northeast Pennsylvania uh, called Wilkes, Wilkes University, uh, which is a okay. small Division I school. And I was going there on a partial Division I wrestling scholarship. And uh, my brother-in-law at the time, um, who wasn't then my brother-in-law, but he was dating my sister, went to this school called DeVry University, which was a technical school. And I'm watching him go through this school and he's learning about computers and doing electrical engineering and learning all of these things. And then, and he gets out and he gets this crazy good job right off the bat. And I'm (laughs) like, wow, that's kind of cool. So I went to my parents and explained to them that I think I'm going to leave the university and the scholarship and I'm not going to wrestle anymore because I think I want to get into this kind of electronics and electrical engineering stuff. And I decided to make a transition to uh, DeVry. And and quite frankly, looking back, I think on one hand, it was a blessing because I would have never got into high tech. On the other hand, I missed out on a four-year, if you will, uh, education at a great school and the experience Mm -hmm. of four-year education. So it was, there's good and bad in both of that, but I wouldn't give it up for anything. And from there, I got out after uh, two years at DeVry, and I got right into a, you know, a pre-sales engineering position um, and spent my early career in, in you know, pre-sales system engineering and working with sales reps like yourself, Ryan, and then mm-hmm. from there into sales. And then I got a very early opportunity while I was at 3Com uh, to interview for a sales management position in New Jersey. Uh, in the New York metro region, and while I clearly didn't have the experience, I went in with the you know the tenacious attitude that I bring to you know the the life every day that I'm going to get this because of my diverse background, because of people, because of you know my attitude, which ultimately determined my altitude in life. And I got the job, and so I was fortunate enough to get into sales management very early on and work my way up through the ranks. Uh, in 1997 or 1998, I joined my first real, if you will, early stage startup, uh, a company called Ink to Me that ultimately went, you know, was a publicly traded company, just had a, a rocket ship ride. And, and uh, that went really well. And then I had the great fortune of someone introducing me to uh, a lady called Diane Green in 2002 um, after a very short stint at EMC. Uh, to join this company called VMware. I knew nothing about VMware uh, other than when I read the website and after I met with Diane, I said to myself, 
uh, if they can do what they say they can do and take, you know, 10 servers and throw them out the door and put all of them on one and allow multiple operating systems to run simultaneously. I said to myself at the time, I can sell this shit silly and I can figure out how to build a <laughs> distribution strategy. And I joined, there was a couple hundred people, you know, a few million in revenues. And I had the great fortune of being there for, you know, almost 15 years and seeing it go to 7 billion in revenue from 200 people to 20 plus thousand and got to do a whole bunch of different things. And, uh, you know, it was a, an amazing ride at which time, um, you know, I needed to make a transition out of an operating role, but I wanted to stay active and because I'm still a young guy and I have a lot of drive, but I wanted to get off the road and traveling. And I had three kids that were going into high school and my wife and I looked at each other and said, for the next four years, we both want to be here. After four years, I can do whatever the hell I want again. But for the next four, we're yeah. going to be here and not live around the world in airplanes and in hotels. And made a decision to transition. And the opportunity at Sequoia, which I think is one of the most iconic uh, you know, venture firms in the world, to join here as a partner. And that's where I've been my last three years, hopefully giving back to a community of people. Uh, all the experiences, both success and failure that I've had over the last 30 uh, now doing that with younger companies to help them build, grow, and scale over time. So I'm very uh, fortunate. I'm very thankful. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been an amazing journey, and I wouldn't give any of it up along the way. It is an amazing journey. And, and you know, anyone would be lucky to, to have that. I know a lot of people might look up to, to people like you and, and Jim Steele, who we were talking about before. And, um, you know, a couple of things you said stick out to me you know, one is just optimism and positivity. You seem like an optimist and someone who you know, uses their attitude as an advantage. And then the second is your, your drive or your will. Um, so, you know, talking about those two things, you know, what else do you think really made you differentiate yourself from other people who were right there in those yeah. roles with you throughout the past 25, 30 years? Yeah, that's great. And thank you for recognizing that. Listen, I, I tell people all the time in kind of a funny way, but I'm being serious. Any day above the ground, Ryan, is a great day. Um, <laughs> and while we all have individual challenges along the way, um, you know, it's just great to be alive and have the opportunities that we have at this point. And, you know, when you have children, I just, I ultimately believe, uh, and I tell my, my children this and, and my son specifically, your attitude will ultimately determine your altitude in life. Um, mm -hmm. And while... One of the things I've learned is um, when people are younger in their careers, they have a tendency in their professional life to follow people who have very high IQ because you're enamored with their intelligence. Um, when you get more experience and you get more tenure in your career, you'll find people would much rather follow someone with very high EQ than high IQ. Now, that doesn't yeah. mean to say that the, the you know, you can't have any IQ, <laughs> but people who have really high EQ and understand the, the people side of the business and the importance of relationships um, and have, you know, the right capacity on the IQ side, they're very special leaders. Um, and I really try to focus, you know, on that aspect of leadership. Um, and then the other thing is just because of where I grew up and the environment I grew up in, you know, I wasn't a young man who got to go to any Ivory League school or go to, you know, go to any graduate school of, you know, Stanford or Harvard or MIT or Penn or any of these other ones. 
I honestly believe, and, and I will say this until the day I, you know, transcend into heaven, um, I think Will will be skill any single day. And uh, mm-hmm. that kind of goes with the attitude thing, uh, Ryan, but I just, you know, life is great. And, um, and, and when you get into leadership roles, what I found is that enthusiasm is contagious. Um, and people gravitate to people who are enthusiastic and passionate about what they do, yet they're humble and grounded as well. I love, I love that. Um, trying to take mental notes here, but of course we'll go back and, and re-listen to this. Um, so you, know, you mentioned you have that foundation of, of some of the skills that are harder to, to quantify, the will, you know, the drive or grit as Angela Duckworth calls it. Um, but obviously along the way a- across your career, you've probably, and you have refined your sales muscle, so to speak, you know, to a point of, of mastery. And yeah, I can imagine the number of big deals you worked on at VMware you know, across that, that, that incredible career. So knowing that a lot of the listeners are uh, sales folks or in customer facing roles, I'd love to get your take on when you start to think about large and more complex deals. So fortune 500 deals where you're selling up and wide and you're, you're selling to different lines of business, you know, what are some of the, the two or three traits that you've seen are crucial to navigating large, you know, five, 10, $20 million deals at the enterprise level? Yeah. So so first and foremost, you know, I, I love sales because it's very similar to, you know, building strategies around sports. So I equate yeah. everything back to a, a, a game a little bit and a strategy on, on how to win. But it's not about winning. The best deals are when both company and vendor or strategic partner walk away feeling like it's a good outcome. So I never go into any negotiation or any 50 or 80 or $100 million deal saying we have to get this and they don't get that. Um, I fundamentally always try to put myself in their shoes, try to understand the, the value they think they're getting versus the value we're selling to them and try to close that gap. Um, the other thing is I try to narrow things down very quickly in big negotiations as to, all right, what are the top five things we're going to have to negotiate because all the others are minutiae and they're typically the same things, especially in the software world. It's IP, it's indemnity, it's warranties, it's blah, 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 the things we deal with every day. So I was really yeah. big on just cutting right to the chase. What are your biggest points? What are our biggest points and how do we solve them? And then everything else can take care of itself. Um, and then the last thing I would say I always try to remain very balanced in, in doing deals and not let emotions take over, especially as things get tight towards the end of the quarter. Um, because if you live your life in general based on emotions, uh, you're going to have a, quite a rocky life and there will be a lot of ups and downs because that's emo- how emotions are. That's why they call them emotions. They swing one way or the other. And if you're doing right. deals and you're being emotional, I think you can get yourself in trouble as opposed to remain balanced. And sometimes in negotiations, call time out and just say, listen, let's cool down. Let's re- regroup tomorrow. Um, and don't be afraid to call, call a timeout on yourself, your team, or the customer. Um, so, you know, it's a game, uh, you know, you know, the procurement folks have an objective, the legal folks have an objective, the big you try to get them to input, you know, and sometimes they get blocked out. It's in the hands of these 
just understand it's a big game and you have to figure out the game. And the other thing is every single person in a deal negotiation is motivated by something. And I think part of the fun and strategy I used to think about is what is in this case, if I'm negotiating with you, Ryan, everyone has a motivation button and it's your responsibility to figure out what that is, find it and hit it repeatedly. Because there's something that's motivating you in a in a negotiation, whether it's price, whether it's you know duration, whatever it may be, figure that out and solve that by pushing on their motivational button. Uh, I think is very important. And then the other thing is, quite frankly, um, I was never afraid to walk away from a deal if it wasn't the right outcome for the company. I had no problem just looking at the customer and saying. This just isn't going to work. I respect your position. We've tried. Let's move on. And, and have the intestinal fortitude to truly move on. And because if you don't move on and you keep coming back to the table and it deal slips from one quarter to the next, and then you go back and say, okay, I'll give you this discount again, you lose all credibility and integrity. And it's hard to do, especially for younger people in their careers, but the older yeah. I God, the easier it was to do, especially when you're dealing with executives. That is that's such a key point. I was hoping you hit on that because that comes down to having those tough conversations where you feel uncomfortable, but certainly still being respectable. But, um, you know, so you would have no problem, so to speak, if you're uh, you know, working a deal and, you know, the discounts expire at the end of the month, so to speak, you really would hold the line on that many times and walk away if need be. Yeah, there, there's no doubt. And you'd be surprised how many times you actually ended up walking away where they didn't come to the table or my team didn't come to the table. And there's a little bit of reverse psychology in there that you have to use in these negotiations. Like, it's all cool. It's good, Ryan. You have yeah. this much money. I have this much product. You're asking me to throw, you know, you want a bigger discount? I just can't do it. And I respect your position. And maybe you're telling me you don't have the budget now. You'll have it next quarter. Let's do it then. Like, it's okay. My quarter is okay. Um, and it's amazing how, you know, just like you think it's a game, they're playing a game too. Like, and once you break through that and you take the emotions out of it, you realize that, you know, if you're in a negotiation, I always believed – Ryan, if you're at the point where you're at the table negotiating with a customer, they want your damn product, goods, or service, or you wouldn't be there. So let's be clear. Totally. They want to get something yeah. done. You're at, yeah, you're at the point there where you're, you're so close, and yeah, they wouldn't be wasting all that time. They wouldn't be bringing in you know, vendor management or procurement if it wasn't to the point where they were ready. So that, that's great advice and something that is all too true for young, uh, young folks uh, having the, uh, the gall to step back and, and say that because everyone's so eager to close the deal, you know. Um, well, we'll just uh, we'll shift real quick to, to some of your wrestling background because two things that really stuck, stood out to me when talking for people preparing for this are, one, your work ethic, and then two, your ability to stay calm under pressure, right? I, I can just imagine some of the pressure you were under through all those quarter ends at VMware, um, must have been insane. Um, and then I can send your work ethic. So maybe just talk to, to how wrestling instilled that in you, both the work ethic and ability to handle pressure and keep your emotions in check. Yeah, it's actually a great question. And I often look back and revert to, you know, um, how I work. 
uh, how I live, how I play, and how I led teams, um, and attribute a lot of that success to wrestling. Wrestling was a, a, a sport that required a tremendous amount of discipline, a tremendous amount of sacrifices, going to Thanksgiving and not eating because you had to make weight while everyone is around you. <laughs> Or your basketball buddies, you know, eating everything at lunch, and I sat there with a, you know, popsicle, and that's what I'd have for lunch. It taught me tremendous <laughs> discipline. It also taught me that um, it's not the size of a human being that matters; it's the heart that matters. Um, and it taught me that while your heart is clearly not the largest muscle in your body. It's the most important one because every other part of your body can fail, including your brain. And I can keep you alive a long time, Ryan. But when your heart fails, you fail. Period. End yeah. of story. So I just, you know, I just learned about, you know, how to have a lot of heart, grit, uh, discipline, and drive um, to be successful. And that all came out through wrestling. I, I really, baseball, yeah. You know, football, yeah, but wrestling was was a great way to to learn those those characteristics and traits as a young person slash young man. The other thing that I really um, have come to appreciate is in sales. As I moved into sales and sales leadership and executive management, wrestling taught me this this whole concept of being an individual contributor yet being part of a team. Today, my right. guest, Brian, you're on a team. You're on a sales team. You have a sales manager. Um, but if you crush it and you're successful, you can say, you know what? I don't care about the rest of the team. I made it. Who cares? Right? But the great individual contributors are ones who care about the team and okay. care about the team's success. In wrestling, I was part of a, a couple teams where, quite frankly, unfortunately, the team was absolutely like terrible, and I was <laughs> that's where I was doing great. You know, a couple times in high school, I was you know getting twenty and zero. I was at twenty and zero a couple points, three years in a row, I think it was, and, and my team was terrible. But it taught me to make sure that I tried to bring the team along with me and not made it about me or being in the individual, but focus on people. And, and you can, as an individual or as a leader, if you focus on yourself more than you do the team, you'll never end up being a great leader. And wrestling taught me that because you had to be disciplined and be successful as an individual to win your weight class or whatever it is. At the same time, you're part of a broader team. And it just taught me a lot about how to both focus on myself and my own success, but also be part of a broader outcome or mission, and that's the team. So there are the things in life that really, you know, drove me, uh, you know, you know, from wrestling to success in, in business or, you know, perceived success in business. And then the other thing is just pure work ethic, man. I, yeah. I fundamentally have had this belief since a young man that I knew I wasn't the biggest. I was never the strongest. I was never the fastest. Um, but I was going to outwork everyone. I remember every day in high school during the wrestling season, I'd get done with the workouts, I'd go home, I'd put my sweat gear on, and I'd run another four miles at the end of the night because I thought my competition wasn't every freaking night. Like, didn't matter Man. how it was in Pennsylvania, it was, you know, 20 to below, I would do it just because I wanted to outwork. And as I got into business, 
I had this belief, right or wrong, that the pace and energy of the organization is completely derived from the leadership and the pace that he or she sets. Um, so I always felt like, you know, that I had to set the pace and work ethic of, of the team and people look to that. Um, at the same time, I'll talk out of both sides of my mouth, I had to learn that while this is how I think and how I work and fly around the world and I'd go days without sleeping in a hotel, I'd sleep on red eyes flying across Asia or Europe and get up and you know off the airplane, shower at the airport and keep going. I had to learn and realize not everyone is wired that way. So I had to learn to accept people for who they are, what their beliefs are, and what their work ethic was, and make them successful despite them maybe not working at my same pace. So you would do that? You would you would uh, not even sleep, get to the airport, and shower, just keep going, huh? That, that, was, that was pretty routine? I, uh, I think wrongly looking back or rightly, I was the king of red eyes all over the world. Uh, <laughs> wow. I just, so, I thought it was a waste uh, of time to travel during the day. So I'd do it at night, get off the plane, shower at a hotel at near the airport, um, and then just go to meetings and power through. Um, yeah. You're an animal. My God. So like, four quick rapid fire questions and we'll let you go. Okay. Um, the first is, you know, what's your favorite book that you've ever read? What's on the list? Uh I had one favorite. Now I have a second. My favorite book is a book called Halftime by Bob Buford. Um, and it's a book that is probably more focused on, on young men uh, who are maybe getting into their 40s and who have had, you know, a pretty good career until that point. And what it, what it really talks about to net it out is how to move from a life of success uh, to a life of significance. So as opposed to focusing on success and letting that define who you are, start to think yeah. about in your second half of your life after halftime, how do you want to be remembered? And what is the significance of your life and your impact on people outside of success? So that really helped me think about, you know, now that I'm into my 50s, um, how I think about the impact I can have on, on people and families and younger generation of workforces and how can I give back now more than I get uh, or more than I was even given. So that's a really powerful book. I introduced it to a lot of people. And the second is a, is a cool book. It's, a, it's more of a, it's a Christianity book by my sister. It's called uh, Abound, and it's all about servant leadership. She just wrote it. I think it's her fifth or sixth book. It's a really cool book. Um, it's not for everyone. I'll say it right up front. So it's definitely a, a strong Christian book, but it talks okay. about uh, what servant leadership is and servant leadership is really defined on, you know, servant leadership is not how you lead, but it's more about how you follow your people because you're serving. Servant leadership is serving your people more than it is them serving you. Okay. Okay. Um, hadn't heard, of, haven't heard of either of those. That's pretty cool. Your sister's an author. Um, Okay, second question is, what's the longest road trip you ever went on back in your heyday without, without, uh, without a break? Do you remember one? Uh, yeah, I used to uh, typically do once a year, I would do a, a two-week trip where I would not come home over a weekend, and that's where I'd just do a kind of around-the-world trip. 
Um, but I worked my butt off to try not to do that so that I would come home. I mean, I can remember flying home from Europe for a day and a half to be with my family because that was my commitment. Get back on a plane and go back. Um, oh, you're traveling as much God. as I used to. Those weekends were precious. And yeah. while I loved my job, my you know company, and my people, um, there's nothing more important than what was in the four walls of my house, and that was my family. And I would want to make my you know weekends that special. So, um, but I would have to do a couple times a year, maybe you know around the world, and you spend a weekend on the road, and you overlap a couple weekends. Um, and they're hard, they're lonely. Uh, people think they're glamorous, they're all fun. Um, they're, they're not. <laughs> so I always caution people when they want worldwide or global roles running a, a field operation, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, no, it's, it's fun the first year or two being in an airport, but then uh, pretty much the same thing. You, know, you land, rent a car, go to the airport, then you're in meetings all day. Um, well, two quick ones here. Um, the third is, you know, what did you love so much about sales? Just in a, a sentence or two. Um, I love the fact that anything you can look, touch, or feel has been sold by someone. It's the greatest yeah. profession in the world. And I feel like if you're a good people person with a good attitude, with a good user interface where people enjoy working with you, um, it's just a great profession uh, to be in. Uh, and you know, I, I just, um, because I love people so much and I love building relationships and figuring out how to build deep, meaningful relationships. I don't think there's a better way to do that in sales. And, uh, it's just a special profession that, uh, when you become good at it, I feel like you can be dropped into any city in the world and sell anything. Oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. Last one here is. You know, it's a little, it may be obvious to some folks, but I'd love to hear your answer on this is, you, know, you mentioned your dad's your, your mentor. It sounds like he's now passed, but you know, what, what's, what's the one thing he really taught you that maybe wrestling didn't teach you? Uh, focus on your family. Your friends okay. will come and go. Your job will come and go. The company you work with will come and go. But one thing that never should come and go is your family and uh, focus on, on that first and foremost. And also um, another thing is focus on the relationship, at least in my case, I have with my wife. Um, I love my children, but the relationship I have with my wife is probably the most important and precious one because it sets a template for my children as to what they should look for in a soulmate and a love mate for the rest of their lives. So. Um, that's a really important thing for me, and I, I witness that with my parents. I love it. Well, Mr. Eschenbach, this has been awesome. I'm, I'm super fired up right now. I'm feeling excited, uh, and I just want to thank you uh, for your time, and we hope to have you back on at some point here. Thank you again, sir. That's the end of this episode, but definitely not the end of the show. For more episodes, please go to wrestlingchangemylife.org. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a star rating. Show the love, baby. Show the love. Thank you so much. We'll see you again soon. Peace.